This episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment online. If you go to audiblepodcast.com slash Jeff Rubin, you can get a free 30-day trial on Audible as well as a free audiobook download of your choice. And uh, this is one of these weeks where I love talking about it because uh, we have an author on the show today and his book that we're going to discuss, Slimed, an oral history of the Golden Age of Nickelodeon, is on Audible. So listen to the episode. If you want to learn more uh, about the history of Nickelodeon, head over to audiblepodcast.com slash Jeff Rubin and uh, pick up the book for free and have it read to you while you're at it. All right, here we go. Hey everybody, welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and this week I am very excited to be joined by Matt Clickstein, author of Slimed, an oral history of Nickelodeon's Golden Age. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, thanks for getting the title right. Now, let's start with that title. How do you define Nickelodeon's Golden Age? Um, you know, it's very relative, actually, and I was just watching an old clip of Harlan Ellison, uh, who along with being a big deal sci-fi writer, uh, was a big critic of television, and he discusses uh, just the various semiotics of Golden Age and what does it mean, although this was, of course, in the 70s, so he's comparing you know, Charlie's Angels to Twilight Zone. Uh, but uh, it's difficult to say. For me, it's a personal thing. Um, you know, uh, I was thinking about the Nickelodeon that I enjoyed, that I watched, and that was really... Uh, mid to late 80s, a lot of it was reruns to mid to uh, mid 90s. Um, and I just found in doing the book and in interviewing people that there was a body of uh, personnel at Nickelodeon from about 1983 to 1995 who uh, together brought Nickelodeon up to an unprecedented level in quality and uh, in just these amazing shows. And when they all left, the network definitely expanded financially and became the powerhouse it is today. But the programming uh, didn't really follow. It's, you know, we had more of the kind of saccharine shows like Dora and iCarly and things that, you know, make a lot of money merchandising wise, but aren't exactly Pete and Pete and Ren and Stimpy. Now, how much of that is you grew up with Pete and Pete and you grew up with Ren and Stimpy? Don't you think it's possible that in 10 years someone's going to be saying, oh, they used to make quality shows like iCarly, but now they're making, I don't know, Zaxophon. Uh, you know, I actually, I'm a big fan of Zaxophon, actually. One of my friends works on that show. But um, I, uh, no, I, it, it's, a, it's a valid point. In fact, um, some of my friends who are older than I think that Ren and Stimpy ruined the network and that it was mm-hmm. great in the pinwheel in earlier days with shows that you've never even heard of and most of your listeners probably never heard of, like Livewire and uh, Spread Your Wings. Pinwheel I have a very, very vague recollection of. I mean, how old is Nickelodeon? Because I was only interested in Nickelodeon, when I was a kid, I never, like, actually learned anything about it, and, like, Wikipedia didn't exist or whatever, so I actually don't know anything about the history of Nickelodeon and who made these shows. How old is the network? I, don't, I have no idea. Well, to, me, for- it, to me, it was invented when I was a kid, you know? Yeah, no, of course. Uh, that was like, I always thought that the year started in September because that's when uh, the school year started and that's when my birthday was. It took me a while Plus to realize the TV it was shows are on. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, no, you know, again, it's all, it's all a personal thing, but... Uh, uh, there's actually a lot of debate about uh, the provenance of Nickelodeon. It, some people say it started in 1977. Some people say it started in 1979. Some people say it started in 1980. Um, 
the the clearest, most valid answer though is April first, April Fools, uh, nineteen seventy nine is when it uh, launched. According to Gus Hauser, who is quote unquote the father of Nickelodeon, uh, and sent me this like the registration envelope that he ha- had, you know, that he uh, had registered or whatnot, and said this is when it happened. But that there- was the idea network for kids. Yeah, in fact, it was the original idea was it was a loss leader for the movie channel. Uh, Nickelodeon, a lot of people don't know this. Nickelodeon's like the second or third cable channel like ever invented. Like it predates everything. It was a true experiment. In fact, they use it as something that um, was called narrow casting instead of broadcasting. Narrow meaning suddenly they said, what about a channel just for kids? Mm-hmm. And then later on, a channel just for music or a channel just for women. No one thought to do that. Nickelodeon was really an experiment in that. And basically, um, a, a company called Wasac, Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Company, um, was trying to sell its package to communities all over the country and said, go with us over you know the, the packages that have like HBO and whatnot because we have the children's channel and it'll make you look really, really great. Um, and they were able to sell the movie channel and one or two other, other, other channels in the package with Nickelodeon, which won all these awards and which all these different groups were excited about. But it was actually bullshit, which was on there. They actually called it the Green Vegetable Channel and it was just this crap. What um, was on there? Shows like what I was just talking about, like uh, Spread Your Wings and uh, a show called Video Comics and um, a show called uh, Hocus Focus, which a lot of the executives I talked to didn't even know what that was. Um, a show that w- about sports with Reggie Jackson, a show about behind the, the movie scenes uh, with uh, Leonard Nimoy, actually. Um, Kids love Leonard yeah, they, Nimoy. Yeah, it was great. Or you can watch even the show, this early version of a show called Livewire, where you could see women talking about being pregnant in their teens or Andy Kaufman on it or disco dance parties. Um, this goes way back. Uh, there was a show. It even the whole thing started in Columbus, Ohio, and they had something called uh, Columbus Goes Bananas, which with a Z, of course, which later became America Goes Bananas. Um, and it just was this kind of hodgepodge bric-a-brac of crap that they can pull it from wherever. And just real quick to give you an idea, Pinwheel was quite literally them grabbing a bunch of stuff, m- much of it from Eastern Europe because it was cheap, of just this like crappy like claymation and all these things that they sort of slapped together with you know images of this like mind running around and that kind of thing now there are people out there listening to this possibly and who complain on my facebook page and other places that that was the golden age the so, book's not even out yet they're already complaining oh what are you kidding of course god that's well that's who is complaining before they read the book i you know i don't know like angie 752 or whatever the hell uh but uh no there are definitely people out there i mean there well, was this how did, i think i know the answer to this but just so other people know like how do people know to complain on your page about nickelodeon Oh, because it's such a small, niche thing that's now kind of exploded just because everyone's kind of getting into the 90s nostalgia thing or 80s nostalgia thing, whatever you want to call it, that people have kind of found out that I'm doing this book and, you know, we're just kind of, you know, humping the social media thing. So everyone's telling everyone else about it. And to be perfectly honest, there's really nothing else like this out there. Uh, There were two other books about Nickelodeon that have been published, but both of them are scholarly texts, um, literally for like media classes. And one, one is quite honestly just a collection of scholarly essays and the other one is an that extrapolation on that essay you know what the first one nickelodeon nation is quite good and anyone who's very interested in like the serious side of nickelodeon should read it what's like in the serious side of nickelodeon 
um, development. A lot of this, this like boring crap that I'm talking about now, like stuff about like loss leaders and narrow casting and things mm-hmm. of that nature. So it's business oriented. Yeah, it's more business oriented. In fact, originally my when I turned in my book, it was two hundred seventy thousand words. The book that you're going to buy in the stores is ninety thousand. So you can do the math. And what we pretty much did was just lop off all that business stuff, which I'm actually glad I did now because I'm friendly also with Alan Salkin, who did the Food Network book, um, also through Penguin, so I can talk about it. And uh, called From Scratch, that'll come out like three days after mine. And he left the business side of it in, and he's already getting some criticism about that from some of the critics and whatnot. Um, the book is supposed to be really good. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Alan's a great guy. Please read it and buy it. But he did say that he maybe regrets having done that a little bit. And when I talked to a few other people, they said, oh, they're so glad that I just went right into the fun stuff in Nickelodeon and kind of left out the business stuff. Also, just to be clear, the book's not out yet as we are having this conversation, but as you are listening to it, the book is out. You are in the future, and you can go buy the book. We just can't in the present. See, now we have to figure out who's Bill and who's Ted in order to finish this game. We're sending a message to the future. How did you come to write this book? Um, with a computer. Well, why are you writing? Is this your first book? No, I've done a few other books, but from for some really, really tiny, tiny, tiny infinitesimal uh, presses that no one's heard of before. Um, what were those books about? Were they oral <laughs> histories or the, the, the research? They're all based? over the map. One's a one's a talking children's book about a boy whose dog forgets how to read. My dog forgot how to read. You know, on iTunes. Um, another was. Um, a book I can hardly even describe called Daisy Goes to the Moon. I won't even try to describe it right now. Uh, I guess it's kind of a punk rock Alice in Wonderland. Uh, another is an erotica novel. We'll switch over that. And then um, I did something called Back to Hollywood, which is sort of an autobiography about an experience I had going back to L.A. for the first time. Uh, and then um, That's a, a, a self-published book I did when I was 18. That's a very diverse resume. Is that intentional? Do you not want to write the same kind of book twice? You know, I dated a girl a couple years ago whose mother is a best-selling author, something she kept from me for a while because she was worried that would be the only reason I would date her. And we definitely got closer after I found out that her mom was a best-selling author. Um, But that wasn't why I was originally dating her. Um, I uh, uh, and, And the mom was the first person who ever told me the trick to being successful in this business, or really any business, is to pigeonhole yourself. You do want to pigeonhole yourself because then you become that guy who does those books and people come to you. I mean, there's no doubt but that's that that's not what you did. What? No, I, I know. It's you did not, not follow so I, that advice. And I'm, I would like to now, years later, because a lot of these earlier books I did when I was younger and was just film, filled with piss and vinegar and, and mostly the former, but um, I, uh, you know, now, you know, I'm getting a little bit older, uh, 30s come and gone. Uh, and, uh, you know, like to at least think about houses and kids and cars and things of that nature. So, you know, now I'm thinking more of like doing more creative nonfiction and what would be the next oral history and should I do The Simpsons or should I do Bob Ross or, you know, whatever. And so um, I would like to do more of that kind of stuff, but I get bored easily and I'm like annoyingly prolific and then I just like keep writing. I have like graphophilia or something or graphomania. And so... um you know, whatever comes out, comes out. I mean, that's that's all that there is to it. So I don't know why I've written so many different kinds of books. I like the idea that I could do like erotica on one level and then like a book about Nickelodeon on the other and a children's book. I mean, Shel Silverstein was all over the place too. Mm-hmm. You know, he did like songs about pot. He did porn for uh, 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 cartoons for Playboy. And then, you know, of course, he did the children's books that we all know and remember. Mm-hmm. So he's a hero of mine, like big time. Like he's probably like him, Bill Watterson, and Rod Serling are my three big heroes. So Did he ever write any nonfiction? 
Shel Silverstein, no, he didn't. He did not write any nonfiction, unless it was something that was very small. That um, maybe I'm pretty art, maybe a magazine article. Well, I, yeah, but I don't even think that. I've read actually the few biographies and such about him. One written by a friend of his called Boy Named Shell. Um, and actually, at one point when I was in college, tried to do a movie about him and got a cease and desist order from his estate. Um, so I got pretty involved in finding out about him, and I'm almost certain he never did any actual. Uh, nonfiction. I want to get back to Nickelodeon. That's probably good Shel Silverstein's so cool. Yeah, he just, is. Real quick, like yeah. one awesome thing I should know about Shel Silverstein. Uh, he's I think act- a lot of people probably don't realize one that he did stuff for Playboy and he did adult stuff. Two that he's a, a man. I think surprises a lot yeah. of people still. Well, no, there's that crazy picture of him in the back of all of his books where he looks insane. Remember right, those pictures? Right, right. Those like weird black and white pictures where he looks like he's going to kill you. I definitely. Re- that's true. The pictures are there, but I definitely remember learning that he is not a woman later in life just because Shell anyway right. so I think some people might have already learned two things about Shell Silverstein give me one more good piece of Shell Silverstein trivia before the one on. movie that he was ever actually in is called Who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying all these terrible things about me a movie that has the longest title in of any movie that's ever been nominated for Academy Award Barbara Harris got nominated for Best Supporting Actress and she's awesome in it Barbara Harris who we remember from uh, such movies as the original Freaky Friday and Nashville um, and he's, who we remember from the <laughs> Why not? No, but wait, real quick. This is really amazing. He is in this movie, and he's actually playing with his band um, at one point. And it's actually for this is in the seventies. I mean, talk about like you know proto reality show stuff. He's actually playing for this audience that's waiting for real at Fillmore East or something, some huge theater for the Grateful Dead. So it's an actual audience watching Shel Silverstein and his band play in this movie. And what do they do? They point out Dustin Hoffman, who's playing a character in the film, and say that he wrote the song they're playing right now and bring him up and start actually having him play in front of an audience at Fillmore East or wherever it is waiting for the Grateful Dead playing with Shel Silverstein and at that time Dustin Hoffman was still obscure enough where people didn't realize who he was mm-hmm. and it's an amazing you can actually see in the movie like how real it is and just how like electric and it's awesome amazing and Shel Silverstein it's the one movie he was ever in and you should see it because it's a fantastic film written by a great playwright named Herb Gardner who was very good friends with Shel that's I asked for one piece of trivia. That's a solid yeah, one. That's cool. Yeah. That sounds interesting. I it's definitely very good. I think you can only get it on VHS. What's it's the name right. of that movie again? Who is Harry Kellerman, and why is he saying all these terrible things about me? All right, back to Nickelodeon. I think I understand a little bit about the origins, and that they seem just not that remarkable. They sound very similar to the origins of MTV mm-hmm. and other early cable networks. Sure. When did it take that turn? What what, what <laughs> start, kicked off this golden age? Um, a group of about five or six people uh, named Jerry Layborn, Fred Seibert, Alan Goodman, uh, Jeffrey Darby. Um, and a little bit later on, you know, people like Scott Webb, uh, but mainly it was Jerry, Fred, Allen, and Jeffrey. Um, they actually all met um, at uh, Jerry Layborn. Jerry's a woman, by the way, Geraldine. Um, she, she actually, uh, Helga from uh, Hey Arnold's middle name is Geraldine because of Jerry Layborn. I, uh, no, so they all met at Jerry's house and basically said, okay, what are we going to do with this channel that no kids are actually watching mm-hmm. and that Wasek is just using as a loss leader? P.S. At this time, Wasek was basically moving on because lo and behold, this was around when MTV was coming out and they're like, okay, that's making the money. This like shitty thing that we kind of had just to like sell the rest of the programming is not doing anything. Let's just cut the budget completely, which they did and you know whatever you guys can do with it do with it and here's lassie and like one or two other things bye see you later we're gonna go work on mtv now um you know let's not forget that the that whole entire um like company is now called well under viacom mtv networks mm-hmm. um so uh nickelodeon was basically left on its own to die and jerry fred alan and a few of these other people met at her house and said okay what are we going to do to make this network actually work let's actually make it fun
fun and cool and put kids first and all that stuff. They almost changed the name of the channel because no kid knows what the hell Nickelodeon is. They almost called it KTV or Kids TV. Alan and Fred, by the way, had also helped brand MTV. They're, they came up with the um, the uh, the logo and the riff of no 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 no. You can read about them in the MTV book also. They've the authors of that book have been on the show too. Oh whoa, there you go. Wah. I love oral so, histories. Yeah, exactly. No, they're great. Point of story is uh, and so television. That, Those what? are the two things I like: oral well, histories and television. You'll like my book a lot, but. Um, I uh, uh, yeah no so they basically met figured it out and six months later there's actually like a, a term that's used in a lot of things they went from uh, worst to first in six months and they did it what Be- were the shows that helped them do that nothing they had exactly the same stuff they just completely reprogrammed how they were going to do the pro like like the scheduling and such they created really fun awesome bumpers and promos that we all remember they actually did fun and interesting things with like lassie and all these other things and they just they got smarter about it they cared nobody cared before that's interesting that's a theme in that mtv book too is that one thing mtv did was that branding and right. there's i want it's my the MTV same people commercials yeah it's fred and alan and that that glue yeah. with being that glue that holding the shows together being so important it works on kids too i guess well this is the trick that no one really a lot of this stuff we take for granted because it's just how it's done today but before this was such like a wild idea because these are people coming from radio and magazines going into tv now and they have this wild revolutionary idea of rather than promoting the 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 um, shows only let's promote the whole network let's create a destination you will watch this show because it's on nickelodeon so let's actually talk about nickelodeon in the promos let's actually talk about mtv in the promos watch mtv don't just watch this one show don't just watch this one music video and it's the same thing with nickelodeon and it was because they're coming from radio which radio had done that forever and magazines magazines do that forever you're reading a magazine because it's the magazine you're not Mm -hmm. reading it for this specific writer i mean some people could do that too um, but basically, no, you you watched Nickelodeon because it was Nickelodeon. You weren't yeah. just watching it because Double Dare was on it or Pete and Pete was on it or what have you. I mean, I'm sure you remember and a lot of the listeners. You know, how many times did you honestly watch a couple of shows in between the two shows you really want to watch? Because it's Nickelodeon and you're there. Yeah, it's, you're a kid. You've got yeah. nothing to do except watch Nickelodeon. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's also the only <laughs> option when you were a kid. Largely, largely. Yeah, I mean, Disney did come out pretty soon after. I, I mean, remember when I'm a kid, Disney was a premium channel. And it was, yeah, well, that too. It, it was also... Um, even younger kids like I occasionally there'd be a free weekend and it was like for really really little kids you know I, I, that's how I perceived it anyway it had some fun stuff on there that you might at, not this remember is at like, the time like in the late 80s yeah but say. I mean like you know like Adventures in Wonderland do you remember that with Nell mm-hmm. Carter no and I, I mean Oh, yeah. maybe. I remember there was a, a live-action Dumbo where they, like, Yeah, there was, was that, too. That was, like, kind of a fun one. All right, I, that's the time I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. There was some, Or Under the Umbrella Tree. Yeah, yeah. What's the one with the big bear? What? Bear in the Big Blue House. Yeah, that was a little bit later, and also, by the way, created by Mitchell Kriegman, who created Clarissa Explains It All. I love Clarissa Explains yeah. It All. Well, of course you do. Um, and um, Everyone loves Clarissa. Yeah, well, you know, she's kind of cute. Uh, she has the best laugh of anyone I've ever heard in my life. Now, does that show hold up? I'm assuming you have you watched all these lately. Um, yes and no. Uh, friends of mine think it's really funny. I wrote a book about television because pretty much since I was about 12, I stopped watching television. And I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, I don't like TV, and then like go on and on about why I don't like Lost. Like I've never seen an episode of Lost. I've oh never my god, dude, you, you know, gotta like, watch Lost. No, so no, no. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I like to try to keep abreast of No Breaking Bad. I'd like to keep abreast of what's going on in the zeitgeist, but I can't actually sit down and watch this garbage because the camera's all over the place and the acting's really melodramatic. Wait, you're telling me you can't watch Breaking Bad because the acting's melodramatic? 
So I have in the Nickelodeon book people who work on a lot of these shows like Breaking Bad and Scrubs and Parks and Rec and all such because a lot of them came from Nickelodeon. They're the Mm -hmm. cameramen. They're the this and that. And they have some really good reasons as to why the television now is so much crappier than it was back then. And you know, it's it's very valid. It's very it's it's it makes a lot of sense. What are some of those reasons? Uh, it's in the book. Okay, but twenty dollars aren't some shows good? Again, not to keep droning on it, but like Breaking Bad's pretty good. It's probably worth your time. I don't know if you've heard. people You know what? I've about obviously it. heard of good things, and like I say, I really do keep up on like the news in it and such. I mean, IMDb is my homepage on my computer, um, but um, no, you know, I see some of this some of the stuff on mute at the gym. And uh, I've had friends who've tried to foist things on me, like Arrested Development or The Wire and whatnot. And I just I can only watch it for about five minutes before I get really, really bored and want to just watch oh, Three's Company boy. or Family Ties or those Twilight things Zone. are so good. You know, watch something like Clarissa Explains It All. Something, something, <laughs> like, something real quality. Sorry, The Wire. I'm, I'm you know, all due respect to Pete and Pete. No, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, uh-uh. you can say what you want. Look, Clarissa's fun and everything. Pete and Pete is something special. Yeah, I like Pete, Pete and Pete. Pete quite is something a bit. special. You have to admit, Pete and Pete, and everyone on that show. That's where Adam Bernstein worked on Pete and Pete. He's one of the like big deal directors on Breaking Bad, by the way. Mm-hmm. So that's where there's like a big connection. Pete and Pete's a great show. I mean, I think Clarissa's a special show. I think a lot of them are special shows. Yeah. So you revisited <laughs> these shows. I'm wondering, like, which held up really well? Which held up better than you thought you would? And which? Did you remember being great and you watch them now and you were like, I had no idea why. You know, not much really changed, actually. I was a pretty precocious kid. Um, you know, uh, I hung out with my mom's friends at a lot of like the New Year's Eve parties and such. Talking about politics when I was like six or seven. Um, you know, I'm not good at sports. I'm not that tall. You know, so I'm not arrogant about a lot of things, but that I kind of am. My my tastes haven't changed too much since I was younger. Um, you know, I got Terminator for my sixth birthday for my dad. It's still, I think, one of the best movies ever made. Um, but to stay on Nickelodeon for once, um, yeah, no, I think the shows back then are still just as good now that I liked. And again, uh, some of the ones we talked about, look, Pete and Pete is a very special show. It just is. I like it, to mention every time Pete and Pete comes up that it was shot in my hometown of Cranford, New Jersey. Whoa, there you go. I mean, it just the way it was shot, the music that they used, the special guests. I mean, Iggy Pop was on it. Steve Buscemi was on it. Janine Garofalo was on it. Michael Stipe was on it. I'll add, before, a lot of these people like Janine and, and Michael Stipe were really that big. I mean, Well, Michael Stipe was pretty big by the 90s. Well, no, well, but at that point, it was still a little bit strange to get him on there. And this was, it was the- He's definitely one, not someone you'd expect it was, to see on a kid's show. And also, it was one of the specials. So it was before the, sh- the series really got going. Mm-hmm. The reason I know that he wasn't as big as you would think at that point, and the only reason he was on the show is because Catherine Diekman, one of the- kind of creators and definitely like the main director made the music video for Stan and Shiny Happy People. Michael actually slept on her couch for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, and those were the days we're talking about. I mean, R.E.M. was just really getting off the ground into the spotlight that it was at that point. So it was still kind of uh, like, who's that guy type of a thing in a way. Um, but, you know, they had, uh, you know, various other people like that. And there's a reason why it just it brought these people together. I mean, even Sid Straw, who was Miss Fingerwood, um, a lot of people might not know this from our generation, but I mean, she was a really, really big deal, um, kind of punk sort of solo act scene in the 80s. In fact, kind of a fun thing that's in the book, maybe I shouldn't give away, but here we go. Um, for the band that plays on Pete and Pete, like remember the episode Hard Day's Pete when uh, Little Pete uh, starts a band because mm-hmm. he hears that song or sure. what have you? Marshall Crenshaw's in the band with them in the actual episode. But Sid Straw, they said, Sid, can you get someone else? You know, she wanted to get and who she called and who she almost get got? Joey Ramone. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that was her scene. You know, and unfortunately he had to go and, and tour with his band. I forget what they were called, but um, you know, they went to Europe instead, and so we didn't get to have Joey Ramone 
uh, play on Pete and Pete, which almost happened. It seems like you got to talk to people involved in all of these shows. Is that yeah, possible? All of them. How do you? How did that happen? What was that like? Oh man, I'm just that fucking good. I mean, seriously. And I did this without Facebook or any of that crap. I mean, I just figured it out. I mean, I've always been really, really good at that. I used to get, you know, talking about cease and desist letters from Shell Silverstein's estate. I used to get them constantly when I was in film school. Everyone else used to know about this like weird thing I would do where I would just figure out, I, I would just do it. I mean, I was talking to, I was getting stuff from Roland Plancy's office in Paris and whatnot. And when I was a kid, I was writing to like Phyllis Diller and, you know, just. I, 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 I you honestly really were hanging out with your mom's friend. Well, yeah. Phyllis, <laughs> yeah, Phyllis Diller. I was, I was reading George Burns's autobiography when I was like in sixth grade, but, um, no, I just, I, I figured it out. I, I find people through, you know, dedications and other books and go, Oh, they dedicated this to this person. Let me look that person up. Oh, that person has this store in New Jersey. I'll call the store. I'll talk to the person. I mean, that honestly it's was real, uh, a lot of it. What do you call it? Stalking. Uh, yeah. I was, I was going to yeah. say like, uh, you know, footwork just actually getting out there oh absolutely no one of the this is the way i describe the book and i've described it many times you will probably hear me say this ad nauseum but this was really like having a million piece uh puzzle and without the picture i mean i had no idea what i was doing both because i'd never done an oral history before i didn't realize just you know the like just baroque challenges that came along with it but also Again, there was these two books like Nickelodeon Nation that had some scholarly essays and whatnot, but there was never anything put out that had like the full narrative of Nickelodeon, these shows, and a concatenation of them all together. I had to find a narrative so it wasn't just this messy pile of, you know, disparate, you know, quotes that went all over the place, like the, uh, you know, NBC uh, must see TV book that Warren Littlefield did that's a total mess. Um, but, uh, you know, I wanted there to be a beginning, middle and end. I wanted there to be a real narrative. I wanted it to, so that you can read this book and have a real sense of story. I wanted this book to be something that even if you didn't grow up on Nickelodeon or these particular shows on Nickelodeon, you can still read it and enjoy it as a, as a, as a great story and as a bunch of really interesting characters who have some fascinating things to say about life, art, love, uh, you know, being up, being down. And that's really what the book is. I honestly believe... A seven-year-old woman who's never heard of Nickelodeon could read this book, and a precocious 10-year-old kid who doesn't know what any of these shows are could read it, and both could enjoy it because it's just, I think, a good story. And, and that great story characters. is that these people came, they fostered a golden age, and then they left, and then that golden age ended. Yeah, I mean, it's the same as what you read in, in MTV, or um, I think it's Tom Shales who did the Saturday Night Live book, which is a real gold standard as far as yeah, oral it's histories. Great book. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like anything. Those it's punk. It's if you want to call it grunge. Look, it's the same thing and everything. It's the arc is. You know, no one knows what we're doing. We're just screwing around. But because no one knows what we're doing and because we don't have a lot of money, we have to be really inventive and ingenious and we have to be very innovative with the little bit we but that we have. So it's total freedom because no one cares. No one's paying attention. Oh, we're doing this so well. Suddenly people are paying attention. People are kind of getting into this. Great. We have a little bit more money. We have a little bit more resources. We can kind of do this a little bit bigger now and get a little bit bigger. And this is great. Blah, blah, blah. And then 10 years later, it's totally co-opted. The people who started to go, this isn't funny anymore. I'm out of here. Um, and then it just becomes this whole other thing where it's the opposite of what it started as quite literally and a few different people told me this nickelodeon's arc in a sentence is it went from anti-disney to disney how did it do that 
Um, literally what I just explained. I mean, it just mm, went I from. See. Look, the difference between there was a difference first of all between Nickelodeon and Disney. There is none anymore. I mean, there just isn't. You know, you can watch either one, and it's the same kinds of shows. The kids all look the same. Whatever. Before there was a clear delineation where Nickelodeon was the weird, fat, pimply braces kids who weren't really that good at sports, and Disney was Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. Literally, um, you know, and then it got to this point in the late '90s where they just kind of dissolved that. Uh, barrier and it just was like and eh, whatever the kids like quote unquote or more importantly what the advertisers think the kids like and suddenly everyone just looked the same the shows looked the same the laugh tracks were used more liberally I was um, going to ask if you thought that happened across all of television because I think there has been yes. a large homogenization but you don't watch TV so well from what I read about it though yes absolutely um, and again, that's that's why, too, and you got to remember, one thing I did say that's very important is I see a lot of this garbage on the TV on mute at the gym, and I can't really tell what I'm watching, whether it's How I Married My Mother or Big Bang Theory or whatever it is, because it kind of all looks exactly the same. You know, whereas the shows on Nickelodeon during the Golden Age and a lot of the TV that was done even before that, each show had its own artistry about it, its own vision, its own perspective, the way that they used the cameras, the way that the, the actors looked, the way that the costumes were created. I mean, I Love Lucy is not just funny and interesting, but it was revolutionary in using three cameras. Oh, my God. You know, it's, there, was, there, was, there was things like that being made where they, they, they were being innovative with the way that they were moving the cameras. They were being innovative with the way that they were doing the things that they were doing with the kids and the actors and that and that kind of thing. And P.S. again, Pete and Pete's a great example of the gal who did the costumes for Pete and Pete, which some people say, did that create hipsterism? Because if you watch it, it does look like they're all a bunch of hipsters, mm-hmm. like 20 years before hipsters. Um, you know, she ended up doing Deadwood, and then she she's on Mad Men now. Which is, I th- which probably... is obviously trendsetting as far as the fashion is concerned. I've never seen it except at my ex-girlfriend's house when her uh, fat stoner uh, roommate would watch it all the time. And I was like, this this shows for the people like that. I'm not going to watch this garbage. But, um, you know, I saw little clips of it and it's like, eh. I mean, it looks okay. It looks a little bit better. And I like that one girl on it who looks really weird, but I like freaky-looky girls. What's her name? She looks kind of like an animal. I mean, I don't think it'll be controversial to say that Mad Men's pretty good and not just for fat stoners. Don't you think that, like, fat stoner maybe girls. it's not totally fair to judge a show like Big Bang Theory, which is obviously based on the writing, without actually listening to what anyone's saying? Like, that show, for better or worse, whether you like the show or not, it is a joke delivery machine. So if you can't hear the jokes, you know... Right, but I'm making a different point. You're right. I'm being very, I'm being very judgmental and tendentious, and I'm sorry about that. But I'm making That's a different, good. I'm making a different point here, mm-hmm. which is really important. Which is they all look the same. Mm-hmm. Okay, there is a total homogenization. I'm not talking about the writing here. I'm talking about the way it looks. And that's kind of what brought us to this, where Disney and Nickelodeon, the shows look the same. They seem the same. There's the same energy. There's the same feeling. But back in the the golden age of Nickelodeon and some of the really great shows from the past from other other networks and whatnot, you could watch a show and know right away what, what show you were watching. Roseanne looked like Roseanne. Mm-hmm. You know? An amazing show. One of the only shows Stanley Kubrick liked because he felt it was very realistic. That's a fun if you watch it, if you watch Roseanne, something really amazing happens that really n- hadn't happened before, except maybe I Love Lucy, which is people actually laugh at the jokes on Roseanne. I mean, there's that kind of reality. Normally, yeah, someone says a joke on TV show and it cuts to the next thing, but on Roseanne, people they actually like take a moment to laugh. They like the characters, the characters on the show, right? Whereas I think it was more of the actors on I Love Lucy because they were always trying to break each other up, as we all know. But um, no, I think that, and that's an important thing. I think that's really, really important. And in fact, this even goes 
kudos to the animation and to bring it back to Nick on Nicktoons was the reason Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy and Doug, the first wave of Nicktoons were so incredibly phenomenal and why we might not ever see anything like that again, budget, 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 is because they were bringing back creator-driven animation that really hadn't been done in about 60 years. And um, each show, Rugrats, Doug, and Ren and Simpy, look completely different than all the other shows, that were, the, all, than the other two shows, and completely different than any of the other cartoons that were on like ABC mm-hmm. or whatever. And that was extremely intentional. It was Nickelodeon being intentional with that. Let's go out there and find people who are doing something that doesn't look like anything else to market ourselves. These are Nicktoons. This is something that you won't find anywhere else. Are those else. the first original cartoons on Nickelodeon? Yes. Well... There was something called – there was a a Thanksgiving special that was done in, like, the late 80s that no one remembers that uh, Nick produced. And then they also – but it's just, you know, again, pablum. Um, And then before that, they did something, believe it or not, um, that was produced by Ralph Bakshi um, and was co-written by a guy named Thomas Minton who worked on Ren and Stimpy, sort of. Um, He was kind of in the background, more or less. Um, but um, and that was uh, their Christmas special that they did. And yeah, Ralph Bakshi's and Fritz the Cat, like the X-rated uh, cartoon. That that was their first original thing, but it was a special, and they didn't actually have anything to do with it. And then they did the Thanksgiving special, which again was Nick produced, but was just like a special. But yes, Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy, and um, Doug, Doug were the first actual. Uh, Nick, like originally produced cartoons on Nickelodeon. Three for three, right out of the gate. Yeah, and again, it's because it looked so different than everything else. It marked them. And that's kind of what I was talking about before, where you know, writing is writing, and that's great. But to create cartoons or to create shows where immediately you know this is Pete and Pete, or this is Clarissa Explains It All, just from the way that it looks, I think is really important. I think there is something to say, and not just because I also work with people with disabilities, some of whom are deaf or what have you. Um, I think that there's something to watching a show and knowing right away what you're watching you know and I, I and I think that comes from an artistry and a vision and a perception that we don't have anymore every show now looks like a documentary and frankly why you want the reason this is this is what's in the book is because of, of money and time they can't really put the money or time into it to really choreograph it and to really use the cameras in a way that are something special granted I've seen clips and i know that breaking bad does that a little bit and from you know my at my ex-girlfriend's place the little clips on the computer when i'm not trying to sleep with my ex-girlfriend you know it looks a little bit better than some of the other shows or whatnot but it, it still doesn't look very unique or original what about um and i don't know much about what's on nickelodeon right now but one show yeah. i know and i think everyone knows is spongebob which is a pretty good show spongebob's pretty funny and i think is still running and like that seems like a pretty high quality show um, yeah, it's funny. I was just actually talking with this guy who did a book about Ren and Stimpy uh, called Sick Little Monkeys. I haven't had a chance to read yet. Um, but um, we were talking about SpongeBob. SpongeBob's an interesting thing. SpongeBob was really not supposed to happen. SpongeBob was kind of an accident. SpongeBob was a little bit of the aggregate. Did you ever see Twins, the movie Twins? Sure. With Danny DeVito and oh, Elvis boy, have I. SpongeBob, quite honestly, and not to insult SpongeBob, because I actually have some friends that worked on that show. And. Um, SpongeBob was kind of the Danny DeVito to the rest of Nicktoons, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who's the Schwarzenegger there? It was kind there. of uh, Ren and Stimpy, Rugrats, and Doug. Um, and at least it was at least it was part of the Arnold Schwarzenegger, though. I mean, it wasn't just nothing. It wasn't just the the ephemera of nothing. Um, SpongeBob. But then, then the shows run ten times as long as Doug ever did. 
SpongeBob was definitely much more successful, but so was Dora and iCarly and such. I mean, they were, they were really making money. I mean, Doug and Ren and Stimpy and all those things did well, but they didn't make the kind of money that the shows are making now because they weren't pushing it like they did then. It wasn't even international at that time. No, what I was going to say, though, is that SpongeBob was kind of the aggregate, like, okay, we've sort of figured out how to do this now. Let's try to do this again. And from what I understand, they actually thought that that would be Cat Dog. And then when SpongeBob really took off, it kind of surprised everybody. And it was still a little bit crazier and a little bit wilder than they really would have liked it to have been. Um, but it was at least something where they had a lot more control over it. It was much more formulaic because they had kind of figured out, especially from John Chris Felucci and Ren and Stimpy and some of the mess that happened there, like how to control the talent, how to control the creators, how to kind of make sure that they were towing the line a little bit more. So, you know, SpongeBob has its moments. It's another one where I haven't seen much of it, but I've seen little clips here or there. Um, and I certainly, if that was the worst that Nickelodeon got, I think Nickelodeon would be in a much better place right now. It's probably the best, in, exactly. as far as I can tell. It's, a lot of people well, agree I've, that in the last 10 years, it's like the one thing they've really had that's been great. The one other thing I know about Nickelodeon that I hear people, adults, I mean, obviously I shouldn't be watching Nickelodeon no matter what's on as a, as a fully grown adult. But the other show I hear adults talking about, which I'm pretty sure is on Nickelodeon, is Avatar The Last Airbender, which Nickelodeon <laughs> produces, right? <laughs> That I couldn't tell you. I mean, I know what that is, but I kind of only just learned. Re- I re- th- uh, because I focus so much in the book on a very specific time, and I don't really watch the television anymore. Um, I, uh, I I really didn't look into some of these other things. Cora I mean, being the follow up. What I'm, people I'm, are always asking about a Cora podcast, and I don't watch it. At all. I don't know what the hell that is at it's, all. I've never even heard of that. Cora is the the sequel to Avatar. Okay, yeah. I mean, and I also, I mean, I'm not into like um, anime and that kind of thing, so it's so like off my radar. Like I. I kind of know what it is, and I'm obviously aware of the M. Night Shyamalan ding-dong mess that was made. But that's not people who are actually into the show. And I, believe I, I thought it was are. on Cartoon Network. I don't really know. I, I mean, think it's on Nickelodeon. And you know what? Sure. This, I think, goes back to, like, I think it's on Nickelodeon. You knew Pete and Pete was on Nickelodeon. That's true. You yeah. knew Ren and was on Nickelodeon. By the way, also, college kids at, did watch, and parents did watch Nickelodeon back then. There was a time when it was okay to watch Nickelodeon at 30. Yeah, let's be honest, it was focused on, you know, kids more or less, but adults could watch it and enjoy it. Look, when I talked to Janine Garofalo about Pete and Pete, you know why she was on that show? Because she loved that show. Mm-hmm. She watched it. Charles S. Dutton did Are You Afraid of the Dark? Because he watched that show. He loved that show. He thought it was great. It was a great experience for him to be on it. I mean, that's one of the ways they were able to get these amazing special guests on these shows, is because these adult actors were actually watching it, and in enjoying it. And a lot of them didn't have kids yet. I mean, Janine Garofalo didn't have kids. You know, I still don't think she has kids. I don't think she does either. So, um, you know, and she she loved that show. A lot of people did, actually, that scene, you know. So, you know, it was it, there was a time when you could be an adult and watch Nickelodeon. And I think that that, too, is a big, you know, uh, hallmark of what maybe is, quote unquote, being done wrong now. You know, you really don't see that in a lot of places anymore, except maybe some Pixar movies where they're actually, you know, really going for both the adults and the kids. I mean, I think it was Toy Story 3 when Buzz becomes Spanish all of a sudden mm-hmm. and starts doing the dance and all that. I don't really thought about it, but he's talking in Spanish and it's subtitled. That's not for five-year-olds. They can't read that. That's mm-hmm. for the adults watching. The kids are just happy to see Buzz acting weird. Well, they also have references. I can only think of one from Toy Story 1 at the moment, but there's like, there's an Indiana Jones reference. Like, the, the ball rolls at Buzz and they play the music cue from Indiana Jones. That's a little Jones. different, though. I mean, I think kids are, you know, they're kids who know what Star Wars is and Indiana Jones and such. That's a little different. Maybe but, that specific one, yeah. but there, there are references to movies. Sure, Like sure. James Bond or whatever. Yeah. Like, there's right. a Pulp Fiction joke in one of the three Toy Stories, I right. bet. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they do that. Let me go back a little more in the Nickelodeon time machine. One show I've always been curious about in its relationship to Nickelodeon is something I never fully understood, <laughs> is you can't do that on television. 
because uh, it was a major part of the network growing up. And the sliming thing seems to, I, as my understanding is, that's not that's something that Nickelodeon imported as opposed to something they produced. They imported it from Canada. And the sliming thing is something they've really reappropriated in the years <laughs> since. And it's really, it's the name of your book and it's the network's trademark. Yeah. So what's up with You Can't Do That on Television? Oh, man, there's a whole book just there. And I have to, I'm sorry, be shameless here and plug my friend David Dillahunt's uh, documentary on it, You Can't Do That on Film, um, which you should uh, get. You can buy online. Uh, Shout Factory put it out. Um, and it, there is enough for a full documentary and a full book. It's pretty wild history. I mean, just the fact that there was like 300 kids who went through that show, including Alanis Morissette. Right. Um, and Moose, of course. And Moose. Yeah, Christine. So this, for people that never saw this one, because this, this one's a little older, it's a, was a sketch show for kids. Um, there was adults in it, too. I think there were two adu- I didn't realize this as a kid, yeah. that there were two adults. Just two. It was, everything was, every male... A character on that show was Les Lie. Every female adult character on that show was Abby Haggard. Um, Les unfortunately passed away, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him in my book. But everyone had just the most amazing things to say about him. He was actually kind of like a Jim Carrey in Canada, from what I understand. Well, um, is it Jim know. Carrey Canadian? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's like the Beatles. I mean, they're American. Let's be honest. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not right about, totally you bastard sure that's about the Jim true. Carrey thing. I'm not totally <laughs> sure the Beatles are American. I don't know the best. Pizza, American. okay? Pizza. Pizza's American. Pizza's right? American. Okay, there yeah, we go. You're okay, fuck you. Um, so yeah, no, uh, but, but Les Lye was supposed to be just this really big deal comedy guy, kind of in the adult world, I don't mean porn, um, that it was like a big deal to have him on. Actually, there was an early incarnation, you can't do on television, that actually had Ruth Buzzy on it. Um, that was kind of- That's weird, because I always thought the mom was very Ruth Buzzy-ish. Yeah. She like, had like- Yeah. So- You can't do that on television real quick, was a co-production done, um, in Ottawa, uh, the very first season, actually, in 1979, was totally off of the Nickelodeon radar. Um, and, in fact, the creator of the show, Roger Price, is a very fascinating guy himself. I could write a whole book about him. Um, he uh, He's just now releasing those early episodes because they're still his. And, um, yeah, no, it started with uh, some shows that he did in England with – I always mispronounce this – Thames, Thames, the ones that did, like, you know, Monty Oh, sure, they that. did – I can yeah. picture the production logo. Yeah, like, they did Count Duck. Yeah, the state and, um, used to even make fun of Danger Mouse. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. So, anyway, he did a show on there, um, and uh, they, they had slime on there. And the slime was actually all different colors, like yellow and such. And then he was brought into Canada. He's British. He was brought, So, he had kind of the Monty Python mentality around the – a little bit later, like, maybe 10 years after Monty Python. Python. He was brought into Canada to do a kids show there, and he did You Can't Do It on Television, which had a few different iterations. At one point, it was actually an hour-long variety show with like music and all this stuff, um, but then eventually it became the You Can't Do That on Television we know today with, yes, the green slime. The other thing it imported into Nickelodeon that was really important, which everyone agreed came from Roger Price, the creator of You Can't Do It on Television, was the kids first and on the side of the kids mentality. It, it was mm-hmm. a very interesting show in that it really turned the tables on the adults, and this was a big deal because that really kind of hadn't been done before. Now, I don't remember the show that well. How did it do that? Like, How did it take the side of the kids in the way the shows hadn't before? The adults were total idiots mm-hmm. or sick or weird. I mean, Barth's Burgers and the mom was a moron and the dad was this like hopeless drunk. Oh, he's not really a drunk, they made sure to tell me. 
Um, at one point he had a cigar, then they took that away. But no, it was just – and the principal and everything was very like the kids were kind of taking over. I mean talk about lunatics running the asylum. It was basically – you know, it was chi- it was children in the corn except a funny version of. I mean the kids ran it. And, you know um, – and in fact, actually they didn't really run it. Some, some of them made a really good point, which is – and a lot of them the kids lose. And it was kind of more about just like how much the adult world puts on you, how the adult world is dirty, weird, scary, strange – shits on you or slimes you if you will. <laughs> that's what it come came from and uh in fact the real history of sliming literally comes from shit how so that one i got that one's i gotta save for the book because it's very funny and interesting it's about a page the real history of, of slime and you know uh if, if you don't want to buy the book i'll just tell you now you can also read about it in an essay i did about it on split cider but um it it was actual slime in the, the very first time it was used and it's a pretty funny story that's kind of sick um, but anyway, uh, get the book. Just buy the book, people. Please, please buy the book. Anyway, that said, um, yeah, no, the whole show was basically about how much the adult world, you know, shits on kids to the point where they were slimed or or water was thrown at them. And to to do that, to show that, to make the audience empathize with them was, again, very revolutionary. Because even things like Little Rascals or um, the, the East Street Boys, was it? I forget what the other, like – kind of Little Rascals was. I can't remember the name of it. Bowery Boys or whatnot. It had a bunch of different names. Um, East Side Kids. Um, you know, it was kids were in it, but it was still kind of kids acting like they were adults or the adults weren't really as involved. I don't know. There wasn't the same kind of irreverence that we had and the same kind of just spitting on authority that you can't do that on television had. Not to mention, like, all the farts and burps and all those kinds of things. So you can't do that on television with something very special. How did the slime get reappropriated and become the Nickelodeon? Is there any? I imagine, just in my... Uh, I'm just imagining the storyline there that there is some bad blood there with Roger was his name who created yeah on television is. You, you're, because you're Nickelode- right. he created this thing which Nickelodeon yeah. um, you know it's so according high- to him Nickelodeon kind of stole from him yeah it seems and you want something really to me, weird kind of happened too I have, I have some fascinating and 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 Roger's an amazing person everyone agrees he's a genius but he's extremely eccentric a lot of people didn't think I'd actually be able to get him he's he's off somewhere in the south of France. He's almost like a crumb type of character. He left very early on. He also created an amazing show called Tomorrow People. I remember the left, Tomorrow yeah, People very, very, very vaguely. He he left very early on to the point that when I finally did get in touch with him, which, again, was through this very like circuitous random route, um, he, um, he wasn't really aware. It seemed like, and I believe him from the emails that we went back and forth. I had to exchange a lot of emails with him before I got him to talk with me. And then he opened up in a huge way. I mean, my God. But um, he didn't really know that, I think, that Nickelodeon became what it became. Like, he kind of stepped away 30 years ago and sort of was like, wait, what did they do with my slime? And he was very surprised and kind of a little bit insulted and a little bit upset that they kind of took this creation that he made and uh, created, as he put it, like a billion-dollar industry on it. And it's an interesting thing to kind of think about. Could you imagine some little, like, children's, like, thing that you did as kids, like, on some, like, local TV network when you were, like, seven that you kind of did with your buddies or whatever, and then you leave for 30 years and come back and you realize this entire empire has been created on the show that you did with your friends? I mean, that was a little bit, from what I understand, and I don't think he was lying or exaggerating, a little bit of what 
he went through. And we and I have some very fascinating emails with him that I believe him that he didn't really know. And yet now he really does feel like they owe him a lot of money and and that they kind of stole it from him and all these things. He's a very funny guy and he's a really good guy. And I'm actually showing I don't know when this is going to air, but I'm actually showing a video he made special for me at this launch event we're having at the 92nd Y um, on Friday, September 27th, if that hasn't happened yet in the future. Um, and Roger had made this little video for me where he's kind of talking about all this mm-hmm. about like how he created slime and like how Nickelodeon kind of stole it from him, but in a very like wry, funny way, he's very smart and he's very funny. So it's not like totally snarky. It's, it's, it's pretty smart. It's more sardonic than snark. Uh, he did a good job with it. So he has a sense of humor about it, but he does, I think ultimately feel that Nickelodeon stole slime and created a billion dollar industry that they don't pay him for. As, as he says, he, if he had a dime for every time there was slime used on Nickelodeon, he'd be a very wealthy man. Yeah. And maybe like, that's true. Maybe he should have that. I think it's Nickelodeon probably would be just fine if the sliming thing had never happened. Like, I think no, that's not true actually. Oh, it really isn't uh, because you can't do that on television was what, um, made Nickelodeon work even beyond what I was talking about before with like Fred and Alan and all those kinds of things. That was their first bona fide hit. That was when things like New York Times and such were picking up on Nickelodeon and saying like, hey, you you might want to watch this with your kids. This is actually pretty good stuff. And lest we forget, it also led to Double Dare and the mm. slime that was on Double Dare, which there was their first really big hit. I mean, you can't do that on television kind of. If Fred and Alan and what they did with the rebranding and stuff sort of like made Nickelodeon a viable thing in where it's like, okay, now we can, now we actually have something to work off of and you can't do that on television. Like put them in the atmosphere a little bit. And it's like, okay, this is out there. People are talking about, people know what it is. Double dare is the thing that like sent it off where it's like, we're going to be fine. Nickelodeon's going to happen. That's so interesting. And that also is slime. It's a lot of it's slime. I mean, much of it's Mark Summers and and how just indelible he is and his just amazing energy. You got Harvey. You got Rob. Harvey, Rob, and Dave, Alan, Silberberg, and all those people. No, they're great. You talked to all those people. What? Did you? Of course. Yeah. You talked to Harvey? What? Of course. Yeah. Whoa, that's very thorough. Harvey's the announcer. (laughs) Harvey's awesome. Like, what does Harvey do since Double Dare? Harvey's a handyman. He also did Trading Spaces for a minute. Really? Like, he was on Trading Spaces? Yeah, it's all on Phil. Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. That's why. So, and I've actually become very, very close friends with Mark Summers. Um, in fact, it's funny. We were just talking about the other day. Like, I've actually like known him now for almost two years or a year and a half or however long I've been doing this stupid thing. But um, no, it's funny. Like, I like to like be friends with Mark Summers is a little bit weird. It's actually weird that it's not weird. He just we just are. We're friends. We've like hung out a few times and whatever. But um, yeah, no. So the slime though was definitely, as I say. The you know it it was it was you know that juice was the slime that kept the gears of Nickelodeon running. I really do believe that without the slime, Nickelodeon maybe not, would have not have happened. It maybe would have would have failed because literally the network cut off the money and literally the network stopped it. And yeah, Fred and Alan and, and Jerry again, like I said, not to retread, but. Um, they did kind of like save it from total bankruptcy, but they still needed something to like, okay, now we, we, we're here, so what do we do while we're here? And you can't do that on television is what launched it. And then Double Dare took that launch and like kept it going into outer space and like now we're fine. And from there on in, they were okay. I feel like we're talking about a lot of the classics, you know, Double Dare, you can't yeah. do that on television. Yeah. Uh, even SpongeBob, do you revisit some of, what are some of the obscure shows you revisited uh, along the way? Hey Dude, maybe? I was, hey saying, you know, it's funny. I was just going to say, it depends on what you mean by, by obscure, like Hey Dude. Oh, hey Dude's yeah, not I, even that, like I'm sure there's some that, like Hey Dude, they aired forever. Even, they, probably, they aired every show forever. A lot yeah. of, one of the funny things about Nickelodeon that I didn't really think about, but if you remember in the back of your head, um, as much as those shows were aired over and over and over it's and like over. like 30 again, episodes. Right. 
They yeah. they were all like the most any of those series had was five seasons. Okay, and that's thirteen se- that's thirteen episodes per season. That was their syndication. Package. What was the most? Uh, what was the show that had the most episodes? A lot of them did get to five. Rugrats in its first run. Are you afraid of the dark? Like 10 in its years, first run. Well, in, first in its run. first run, gotcha. and then they would come back to do more a little bit later. Like Are You Afraid and Rugrats. Um, but some of them only went for a couple seasons. In fact, Pete and Pete, as much as like a lot of people feel, I'm doing air quotes here. That it was the best, the best series on the network. It was only three ep- three seasons. Yeah, it didn't, it, it didn't even make it to five. Do you think it's the best show on the network? I, I think I do. It's hard to say. Well, I've become well, what, very close to all the running. people on the other the other series. And you know, one of the things to kind of re-answer to amplify my answer from what you asked me before, like, do some of the shows hold up? Some of them I do have a little bit more. Um, uh, love for now or I'm a little more impressed knowing the backstory and like kind of what they did to like make those shows happen makes me I am just that way I watch the behind the scenes on all my DVDs and I watch like the commentaries and such and it's one of the reasons why it's hard for me to like transfer over to Netflix and things because I kind of need all the extra stuff that you get on the DVDs um, and so it makes me kind of appreciate something a little bit more I just finished Dave Foster Wallace's um, Pale King and I think it's an amazing book but while I was reading it it made me feel even more into it knowing like this is wow this guy's about to kill himself like while he's writing this that's really fascinating like where his mind was so that does i am that kind of person who that does it you know i know that's not true for everybody so um, i have more respect now for some of these shows than i did before what's some shows that gained your respect once you learned how they were made um maybe rugrats i didn't like rugrats as much when i was a kid um and uh, you know what about the way it was made made you made you respect it um just all the wild stories that went on behind the scenes in addition to how much they worked to create a show that, again, looked really unique. Um, the people who were making that show in the very beginning, like Peter Chung, who did the uh, the introduction to the show. Let me ask you, actually. What does the introduction to that show remind you of? Uh, all the wide lenses, the, the way it moves and such. I don't know. I, I can hear them. I remember the introduction. I know there's the Mark Mark Mothersbro. I never know how to say his yeah, name. Yeah, Mark Mothersbaugh, yeah. Um, or even, know. yeah, to bring in Mark Mothersbaugh. It's like that music was always so strange and weird. It's very otherworldly. Yeah, it was It was a little bit scary. It's all like the baby instruments. Peter Chung, who did the introduction and the and the pilot, uh, would go on to create Eon Flux. So wait, what was it supposed to remind me of? Eon Flux is a yeah, weird Yeah, Eon show. Flux. That's because a very like, weird show. If you, if you think about it, it has the color scheme and the the, mm-hmm. the the lightness of it and the wide angle lens and the way it moves around. It's Eon Flux. Like you thought, my answer was going to be it reminds me of Eon Flux. Yeah, that is you're giving me a lot of credit. <laughs> I don't remember Eon Flux that well. Really? Oh yeah. come on. Uh, but anyway, I um, no and Gabor Shupo, who um, who you know they they animated the Simpsons, earliest right? Simpsons yeah. things as well as the title sequence to In Living Color, which looks really cool, mm-hmm. and Duckman, of course, which is weird and crazy Duck and Man's like funny. all that stuff. So to take people like that, to take the minds of Gabor and Peter Chung and a guy named um, uh, Peter Germain. Uh, uh, Paul Germain, sorry. I never realized that Duckman was the Rugrats animators, but I do kind of see that, like the color palettes are. Yeah, similar. in fact, there was a there was a point where the the Simpsons animators were in the same building with the Rugrats animators, and so there was a lot of crossbreeding going on there. There was kind of competition. There was like the baby show and then the big show, but no, just things like how much they worked to create something that looked really different made me kind of appreciate a little bit more. And just stories about Peter Chung and how nutty that guy sounded kind of made me sort of chuckle when I when I'm thinking about this like animated show about babies for kids and that they had this kind of 
um, very odd character named Peter Chung who would go on to create something like Eon Flux working on. I mean, that was the whole thing about a lot of the Nickelodeon stuff. The gal who did the costumes for Clarissa Explains It All was such a weird, like, punk rock Jean-Michel Basquiat gal, like, hanging out with all these weirdos in, like, the late 70s and 80s before she would do Clarissa, that she actually had to... Um, give herself a nose, like a nose piercing, because it wasn't really done yet, and it wasn't something you could just go to any store to do it. She wanted a nose ring, and her hair was like bright red, like dyed. She was like a punk. Clarissa, lady. there weren't, I think, girls on TV. It was one. It was cool. It is cool that Clarissa was a show that I think there were not many shows starring girls that boys would watch, and Clarissa is one of them. And two. Um, it's Clarissa is like not a character like most girls on TV. Like she was yeah. a little alternative, yeah. and she was a little a little punk rock uh, in a way that like other girls on TV specifically on kid shows weren't right and that's kind of what I was getting at is they is is they would have these people like Lisa Letterer who I'm just talking about on Clarissa or Peter Chung on Rugrats or or Catherine Diekman on Pete and Pete who were from a totally different world than children's television or children's entertainment. They were bringing in, they were ushering in this downtown Manhattan scene. Uh, they were filtering it into children's television. I mean, that was kind of the kernel that I was really expounding upon um, when I was first start starting on the book. And I came to this conclusion that, oh, this is a bunch of these young 20 to 30 year old like punk rockers and indie kids and and early proto grunge if you want to call it our alternative people who couldn't get work they were right out of school and there were a few places to work at snl sesame street mtv and nickelodeon if you were in new york and many of them worked on all of them that was what you did to pay the bills and and they were just again because people weren't really watching them they you were able to have these like girls who gave themselves nose rings and had dyed red hair and were going to like these crazy like punk shows and stuff doing the costuming for a 13 year old girl on a tv show for kids or you had you know again Peter Chung, although that was in L.A., you know, doing Eon, like, he was making Eon Flux while he was working on Rugrats, or some of these other people, um, you know, who they were just kind of bringing in because they thought they had good ideas, they thought they had really good energy, and it was kind of like, do whatever you want, do whatever you want. I mean, when when the Pete and Peters got friggin' Iggy Pop as a regular, he was on the show a few right, times right, right. on there, they didn't have to get a, uh, authorization for that. It was just like, hey, Iggy, come over here, because Catherine Diekman hung out with all those people. I mean, she was part of that scene. That's how they got Richard Edson. That's how they got David Johansson of the New York Dolls. I mean, they just that, those were friends of hers. And Michael Stipe slept on her couch. Um, you know, so uh, Will Will McRobb and Chris Viscardi, who were creators of the show, um, really liked a, a band called Miracle Legion. And they went to this guy's show, uh, Mark Mulcahy, and said, hey, would you like to do the music for our show? And he did. And he created probably the greatest theme song to any TV show ever, definitely for any children's song uh, a show. I mean, let's be honest. Hey, Sandy, the theme song to Pete and Pete is probably one of the best theme songs of any TV show I ever. have the Pete and Pete songs from Pete and Pete album by Polaris, that yeah. band. And yeah. it's, a, it's a great – I listen to it. Um, not for nostalgic reasons, not for ironic reasons. Like it's a legitimately it's a great good album. Music. Yeah, and Mark Mulcahy is an amazing musician. I mean, Tom York covers his songs. In right, concert. right, yeah. What brought about the end of this golden age? Is just the people leaving? Was the there something? Left. Was there something that uh, caused them to leave, or just they've uh, been there a while? Two things. I think these people have a lot of really hard ADHD. They're all over the place even now. By the way, they went off and created like everything else in television. Jerry Laybourne left Nickelodeon, did a little thing. 
uh, here or there at Disney, and then went and created the Oxygen Network. Uh, Jeffrey Darby left and uh, was pretty much running things like the Weather Channel. He just recently got off of running Martha Stewart's TV Empire. Um, a lot of them, of course, went over and helped to develop Comedy Central, Cartoon Network. They were basically the Johnny Appleseeds of the cable world. Because, again, this was so early on in the world of cable. They figured it out. They created the paradigm. They created how to do it that when all these other uh, channels and things started coming mm-hmm. up, you know, they were the people who were doing it. Um, Mike Klinghoffer, who was one of the like people who really developed Nickelodeon, he named Comedy Central. Or so he tells me. I mean, I'm sure it was a, a more of a committee thing. But... Um, you know, and he told me the story of how he came up with the, the title for Comedy Central, or at least he kind of helped to develop that. And again, you know, obviously Cartoon Network, Spike TV, um, you know, it was all the same people. They just, they wanted challenges. These were people, all of them, Mike, Jerry, Jeffrey, Linda Siminski, who is one of the creators of Nicktoons, like as a block. Um, they need to be at the beginning of things. They need to be the ones who are like, this is how it will run. They get it to run, they get it to be successful, and then they're out, and they go to the next thing. That's what they love. Some of these people are in their 60s now, and they're still going from thing to thing to thing because they have to just keep moving. They're so energetic. That's why, P.S., Nickelodeon had that that crazy vitriolic energy is because it was being run by these nut bars who 30 years later are still doing exactly the same thing as far as just like crazily creating programming and whole entire networks and and just doing everything all at once i mean it it literally is the line from on the road of you know the mad ones you know uh, desiring desirous of everything all at once i mean that's what these people are personified they're amazing people i mean mark summers is an amazing man i cannot believe he has the energy that he has now or then there was like 600 episodes of Double Dare. Wow, every really? Episode, yeah. Every episode he is running and screaming and so excited and so You know so what performance smiling. blew my mind? Um, I recently had Mo, the ref from Guts, yeah. was on this uh-huh. show, and yeah. I revisited Guts. And Mike O'Malley on Guts He's an interesting guy. is unbelievable. He is calling every – like, it's the first event on Guts. It's not even the aggro crag. It's just yeah. the first <laughs> event, and he is calling it like it's the last minute of the Super Bowl. He is pedal to the metal – all 22 minutes of that show. It's very impressive. He's also uh, an accomplished playwright who does some pretty serious theater that'll make you cry. I think he writes... He was on Justified this year. I think he writes for um, Shameless, that show on Showtime. That I'm not sure of, but funnily enough, Justified was created by uh, a guy who used to write... who started off on Hey Dude. Gramios? Yeah. Gramios started off on Hey Dude? Yeah. That's so funny. In fact, when he left that... Um, when he left that series, he didn't know what to do next, and he was always talking with his friends about this movie he wanted to make about a bus. And that, he wrote blah, 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 that he writes speed. So he was actually a really cool guy. He was really neat to talk to. But yeah, again, it's like wow, look how th- I can't believe how many people you got for this book. It's just oh, like it was insane. It how many was people did you interview? A little over two hundred fifty. Who was like the biggest guy where you were like, we got him? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Keenan took Thompson me an hour to was, get there, but I got one. Yeah, Keenan Thompson was pretty cool. I actually got to have lunch with him. Um, I never really watched all that. That was that was pretty much when I left. He speaks favorably of Nickelodeon. Oh yeah, he's, he was great, and he actually we're really hoping. It sounds like he's going to be at the launch event, but he has SNL that weekend, so of course he can't commit. But um, he he was great. I mean, he met with me for lunch. He doesn't have to do that. Um, Melissa Joan Hart was really great to get. Melissa Joan Hart was the one for some reason. Here's here's some fun like behind the scenes of the book and how the publishing industry works. Please, she was the one for some reason that every publisher we were talking to. We're talking to like you know not just Penguin but Simon and Schuster and just all these different publishing companies. Like I would have these conversations with the editors and things. Everyone eventually got around to, did you get Melissa Joan Hart or are you going to get Melissa Joan Hart? 
That was like a really, really big deal. She so ranks. Make sure to get Melissa John Hart, apparently. What'd she have to say about Clarissa? Oh, it seems like favorable, right? Like, oh yeah, no, she, she, she actually, people... no, she, she outright told me that, you know, Sabrina is what kind of made her, let's be honest, because she didn't get a lot off of Clarissa. No one did, got a lot off of Nickelodeon right. shows. But Sabrina um, was like a network show for Sabrina like six years. Sabrina was huge. It was a network. And also, a lot of people don't know this. She and her mom own the, the property. Sabrina? You know, yeah, they actually like got Archie it from Archie's comics, comics. Yeah, no, they they were very smart. Wow. And in fact, when they sold that show, it was like Seinfeld money. Like she's doing pretty well, from what I understand. This is, I guess, maybe I should I should make sure to be clear. This is kind of hearsay. I'm so, but from what I understand, but real quick, like a, she she told me that she loved Sabrina. She had a lot of fun on Sabrina, but she really really liked Clarissa. And it sounded like a little bit better. And the, the quote she gave me, which is in the book, is. Sabrina was great, but she would have been much closer friends with Clarissa. She mm-hmm. liked Clarissa better as a person. That's cool. I'm sure you've seen this, but that CBS pilot of like the yeah, adult Clarissa, Clarissa is—that's yeah. a weird alternate that universe. Was a big you can mess. visit on YouTube. I, very much like uh, there was actually a Clarissa album, Clarissa and the Straight Jackets. Really? That was also a big mess. And, so this was uh, a that was a CBS like laugh track three mostly three camera sitcom version of course where she went to new york or whatever yeah it's her like a little bit older now she's going to college i think she's it's on definitely YouTube. Doing, like an internship yeah it sounds like most of these people like had very positive experiences definitely. were were there any that were like nickelodeon ruined my childhood <laughs> you know what's funny is there was no one who really specifically said that because you got to remember too a lot of these people like this was like a year or two out of their lives i mean the, are you afraid of the dark yeah. kids could barely remember anything because really they did all of the opening sequences like all the midnight society people did all of them like in a quick three week span yeah like one kid i talked to was like man it's like you're asking me about a commercial i shot 20 years ago i don't remember anything and they were right that's how it was done so this was kind of a blip in a lot of these people's lives although because of that some of them it kind of gave them a taste of being special it gave them a taste of this limelight and there were a few who kind of misunderstood that it's like this was it and good luck and see you later you are kind of a weird looking kid you might be kind of fat you might be cross-eyed you might have braces you're just running for the cast to salute your shorts right now uh that's why (laughs) that's why we have you there was a lot more of it on you can't do on television because it was just more kids but there was definitely I, I got a lot of stories of some people who were a little confused and they're 14 they're 15 and they're being told thanks bye and it's like well wait and there were people who were literally saying things like they didn't get to have their sleepovers with their castmates anymore and you know they didn't have that special feeling with the creators of the show there were people who were confused very much like speaking of Stanley Kubrick Malcolm McDowell was on the set of Clockwork Orange he talked about this and you can kind of see how it affected his life and even his career because he started stupidly bad mouthing Stanley Kubrick after Kubrick was like bye thanks and he was like wait I thought we were friends like no mm-hmm. and he was like fuck you Kubrick and that kind of hurt his career a little bit because you don't do that um, and so it, it does happen to other people too like your Malcolm McDowell but there were definitely people who it affected in that way like they were a little confused and i think to this day are still a little hurt and damaged as like 35 or 38 year olds who kind of look back on that and like are kind of like why those people were my friends like where did they go and there's a little bit of that and whenever i brought that up with some of the executives or some of the show creators and things they kind of gloss over it a little in a way that 
I think they just have to distance themselves and, and understand that it's television. That's how it works. That's the job. It's not a charity. These people are not their friends. They're not their parents. Like they have a job to do. Part of that job is making the kids feel comfortable. Part of that job is making the kids feel special. And then it's over and they have their own family and they have their own bills to pay and they kind of have to deal with other stuff and they don't really have time to stay in touch with everybody. And that that's what happens, sadly. I'm actually very good friends with Jason Zimbler, who is Ferguson on Clarissa Explains It All. And He's doing really well from what I can tell from what's being a he apprentice. up to. He's actually a software developer at HBO. He also has a master's degree in theater and he does theater with young kids. He's been doing it for the last like 15 years or something, like since he was much younger. And he loves it. It's a great passion for him. Ferg it's actually face. what he does on vacation. Fergface. Yeah, no, he's literally one of my closest friends at this point. Like we hang out all the time to the point where I don't even tell any people anymore. I'm like, hey, come hang out with Ferguson. So it's like, hey, me and my friend Jason are going to go get a drink. Um, and he just happens to be Ferguson. Um, but, uh, you know, he still talks a little bit about that, especially when you get a few drinks in him. He talks a little bit about like, yeah, it was a little bit odd and weird to go from he was so close with these people and then suddenly he's not. Now, he's doing all that. He was like he was the turd on that show. Like he was kind of a little wiener and everyone hated him. Did like playing the bad guy as a kid, playing an annoying kid. Did that take a toll on him? Not really. And in fact, he everyone, recognized, you know, he's playing an important role. Like, that's you an know important what? Danny, part. Of- Danny, Danny Cooksey, who is Budnick on Sleet Your Shorts, Aaron Tager, who is Dr. Vink on Are You Afraid of the Dark, Charles S. Dutton, who was, um, uh, 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 was uh, Captain Jonas. Um, I'm forgetting the name right now. I'm blanking. But uh, on, Ar- on Are You Afraid of the Dark? You can't Bill. remember the name of the character Charles S. Dutton played that one time. Yeah, because I'm totally blanking right now. Tale of Cutter's Treasure. Jonas Cutter. There, I had to say the title. There we go. Um, yeah, this is all... Uh, people listening, please understand. I don't know how much this is going to be edited, but like this is really taxing on my mind here. I can't believe I'm actually able to dredge up all this information. Your nose is bleeding. But I know. Ah! No, point of story is, look, being a, being a villain is very juicy. In fact, you, uh, the the guy who played Endless Mike on Pete and Pete, Rick Gomez. Um, uh, you know, what it, a great name for a character, yeah. Endless Mike. They, they no, no, the but they, they really, they really show. have to Pit kind of Stain. push and develop. They, they have to make you hate them and also love them at the same time. And Jason did that very well. Jason Zimler was Ferguson, and and he, as he said, if people hated him, he did his job. Totally, his totally. Paycheck. Well, I he guess also I'm, just real quick, just just so that Jason doesn't get pissed if he hears this. Everyone loved him on that show. In reality, mm-hmm. in fact, people seemed to like him better than Melissa even. They thought he was a little more talented. They thought it was much funnier. Like everyone across the board I talked to, the writers, the producers, people love Melissa. Um, people thought Melissa was great, but every single person I talked to thought Jason was really something special. It's a little it's a little bit disheartening that he's not doing more acting stuff today and like film and television. I think Dis- there's other reasons. Melissa Joan Hartening, you might say. Whoa. No, you did not. But I can't, um, I, I can't because get Jason's over good. How thorough, like every show we mentioned, you you talk to the cast, you talk to the creators. <laughs> how many people are in this book? 250. And what is the name of the book again? Slime, an oral history of Nickelodeon's Golden Age. Where can people get it? Uh, every bookstore around. Please go to a bookstore and do it. Support your local bookstore. Come on. Bookstores are awesome. Record stores, video stores. Support them if there are any left. Support them, damn it. Um, you can also get it you know, on Amazon, barnesandnobles.com, all that online nonsense. You can get it as an audiobook. You can get it as an ebook. But you know why you should read it as a real book? This is the reason why nobody thinks about this. When you're on the subway, when you're at the coffee shop and you're reading it, people see it. And A, you're selling more books for me because they're like, oh, I didn't know that book was out. I'm going to have to get it. But also for you, you might get laid because of it. A girl might come up to you and be like, oh, what are you reading? And then you start talking and now you guys are having sex. Isn't that great? Rather than like this like Kindle, this monolithic like box thing where people don't know what it is. And they also like think like you're this weird like computer nerd or whatnot. So like read the book and you might get laid. So your pitch for your Nickelodeon oral history book is you I can might get, get oral laid from if it. I read it. Or you might get oral from the oral history. Whatever works. 
Matt, thank you so much for coming yeah. by telling us all about the book. Thank you. And so, with an oral sex joke, we close the book on another episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. If you want to pick up Matt's book, it's in stores now. Uh, if you want to follow his advice, you can get that hard copy. Uh, if you don't, don't forget, you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash Jeff Rubin. Get a free audiobook download. You can make it slimed. Uh, maybe you can walk around with it playing out of a boombox. Maybe that'll have the same effect. Surely you will attract some attention. Me? Well... I'll be back in two weeks, and you can follow me on Twitter, where I am at Jeff Rubin Show, on Tumblr at JeffRubinJeffRubin.com, on my Facebook fan page, or at JeffRubinJeffRubinShow.com, where you can stream for free every single episode of this show, up to and including this one. I'll see you there. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs>